Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on August 12th of 2018 under the headline, Temporary Insanity Plea Didn't Help Prevent Murder Rap for Bereaved Mother. A quick heads up, this podcast does contain a quote which includes a mild obscenity. Here we go. In the late 1800s, the standard courtroom defense of murderers who wanted to claim the protection of the quote-unquote unwritten law was temporary insanity. The idea was one tried to convince the jury that the killer was driven so completely out of his gourd by the prospect of some marauding Lothario coaxing his wife into infidelity or seducing his sister or his daughter that he lost his grip on sanity and killed the interloper in a murderous rage. For a few years it worked more often than it didn't, but it never worked very well for women at all, and it surely didn't work very well in the late 1870s for Carolyn Briggs who arguably really was temporarily insane. Not that that made her victim any less dead. But here's the story. Caroline Briggs was in her late 50s, and she and her husband George were basically the first family of Josephine County. They'd been among its earliest settlers, they were very prosperous, and they lived in a big stockaded log cabin known locally as Fort Briggs, built originally to resist Indian attacks. They had two sons and four daughters, and by now several grandchildren as well. Then in late June of 1874, one of their daughters, 31-year-old Julia Briggs Floyd, died in childbirth while trying to deliver her third baby. Caroline, the family matriarch, was crushed by this, and by all accounts unhinged. Three days later, with quite possibly the worst timing in the history of the universe, one of her other daughters, 17-year-old Carrie, the baby of the family, came tearfully to her mother to tell her that she had been seduced by the local schoolmaster, John Dalmater, who was now refusing to marry her. Dalmater had been courting Carrie for some time, and Caroline and George had been very encouraging, believing that Dalmater would be a fine match for Carrie. But apparently Dalmater wasn't endowed with as high a moral character as they had thought. This news, and the corresponding prospect of her youngest daughter having a baby out of wedlock, seems to have pushed Caroline over some sort of a threshold. Around 9.30 a.m. on June 30th, she proclaimed her intention to go down to the little one-room schoolhouse and settle the matter on the spot. So she seized her walking cane and headed for the door. One of her sons, David, came with her and brought along his father's Henry rifle just in case. The two of them found Dalmater in front of a classroom full of children and teenagers. They marched right in. Some of the newspaper reports of this incident say Caroline started out by demanding that Dalmater agree on the spot to marry Carrie and that his refusal prompted her assault. This would make sense. But historian Diane Gurris Gardner, after reviewing the court transcripts, writes that the assault commenced almost immediately. It's time this matter was settled, Caroline screamed and started hammering on him with her walking cane. Shoot this son of a bitch, she yelled to David. 
Delmater, no doubt knowing he could soak up a lot more punishment from a cane than he could from a Henry rifle, made a grab for the weapon, and the two men wrestled over it while Caroline continued raining blows down on Dalmater's head. The fight spilled out into the front of the schoolhouse. Finally, Caroline got in a really solid hit, knocking Dalmater down, and David got control of the rifle. Dalmater tried to crawl away from David, trying to reach a tree that he hoped to hide from David behind. He made it most of the way to the tree before David got a clear shot. And then... Caroline continued beating Dalmater after the fatal gunshot, and this may be what finally galvanized some of the neighbors and older students to seize her and pull her off him. Dalmater wasn't dead, but he was mortally wounded. He lasted just a few hours, basically just long enough to write and sign a final sworn statement in which he swore that he had not seduced Carrie Briggs. But it hardly mattered. If Dalmater hadn't quote-unquote ruined Carrie, her mother certainly had by proclaiming her seduction in front of an entire classroom full of witnesses. And on top of that, shooting a man in the back as he crawls painfully away is extraordinarily dishonorable behavior. The Briggs family went, on the instant, from being the first family of Josephine County to social pariahs. Mother and son were thrown into the county jail and held without bail. It seems unlikely that they were denied bail because authorities thought them a flight risk. More likely they were worried that someone might lynch them. It took several months to impanel a grand jury and hear testimony from the 18 witnesses, but when the inquest was done, the grand jury voted to charge both of them with murder. The Briggs family was shocked. But they should have expected this. Feeling against Caroline and David was running so high in the county that the prosecutors were forced to move the trial to Jackson County. Every potential juror in the Kirbyville area, it seemed, was already convinced of their guilt. Caroline's trial came first, in late June of 1875. She had filed an affidavit that she was being treated for mental illness, apparently in support of a temporary insanity plea, but when the verdict came in, it was manslaughter, with a five-year prison sentence... So, certainly, it could have been worse, but it wasn't the not-guilty-by-reason-of-temporary-insanity verdict that she had hoped for. Ironically, the temporary insanity play got quite a bit more traction at David Briggs' trial, held in November 1875. His defense team presented an expert witness, the Reverend S. Skidmore of Ashland, who assured the jury that when David fired the fatal shot, he did so at the direct command of his mother, and that in the moment he didn't know right from wrong. The reporter from the Oregon Sentinel thought that sounded like a game-changer and would result in acquittal, but unfortunately for David, his case had been built around a claim of self-defense. David had already claimed on the stand that Dalmater had been drawing a pistol when he fired. It had to be one or the other. Either he shot Dalmater because his mother said so, or he shot because he was afraid the schoolteacher would draw on him. Couldn't be both. But it could be none of the above, and the jury in the end opted for that. David drew the same verdict and the same sentence as his mother. Manslaughter? Five years. A petition for a pardon for Caroline Briggs was drawn up right away by family and close friends, and the local newspaper got a hold of a copy and published it to great hostility and opprobrium throughout Southern Oregon. Most Southern Oregon residents were still pretty hostile to the whole thing. But a little over two years later, Governor Stephen Chadwick did pardon her, and Caroline Briggs' three-year self-inflicted nightmare was finally more or less over. David was pardoned by Governor Chadwick a little later, after having served roughly two and a half years. He stayed in Josephine County, where he became a minor and married a local girl, and they had three children, one of whom, working the family vocation, struck a huge vein of gold, and the family promptly staked a string of mining claims that made them all quite rich. As for Carrie Briggs, she married a Jackson County man the following year, 
they had five children together. But whatever her mother thought or assumed on that fateful morning when she took her cane to town, it appears Carrie was not pregnant with John Dalmater's child. So regardless of whether she and Dalmater had been intimate, the whole affair at the schoolhouse had been, really, for nothing. Key sources in this story included works by Diane Gurris Gardner and back issues of the Portland Morning Oregonian and Salem, Oregon Statesman. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulplet Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶